Father, um, I thank you for the cross and can it be. No condemnation now. The chains fell off. Thank you so much for that. But Father, experientially, sometimes the chains climb back on. And we need to be reminded afresh of the work that melted those chains at the cost of the blood of your son. We praise you for that. We thank you for that. We want to know more of the liberating power of the gospel. Father, I pray that we would be fixed in our attention on you, Lord, that you would allow us to put away scrolling and drifting, getting all glassy-eyed, chatting quietly with the person next to us, but rather, Lord, there'd be a savoring, a dependency, that we'd be glued to you, we'd be chasing you as we open up this book. Lord, I ask that you would empower us to meet with you so that at the end of this time together today, the very phrase that ends our text would be true of us, that we would be able to say, truly God is among us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. There is a joke among pastors that the last sermon series you ever preach is a sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians. Because inevitably, not everyone's going to be happy with what you or the book has to say. That very well may be the case with today, chapter 14, first half, as we look at what he has to say about tongues and prophecy and gifts and the role of the church. And that very well may be the case in two weeks as he talks about wives in worship. So I hope that remains a joke. Right? I hope this is not my last series. I'd rather like it here. But all joking aside, when it comes to our approach to the Word of God, there are only two approaches, and the two approaches never meet. I can put myself, my experience, or lack thereof, or what I think is the right way to do things over the authority of God and become myself an authority, or I can put myself, my experience or lack thereof or what I think is right under the authority of God. There are no two ways about it. You're either here or there. And we are striving to put our lives in submission to the authority of the word of God. We're in a section where we are talking about spiritual gifts. Let, let, let me get this out of the way because people wonder, well, what is the position of the church? As the church... We, we are seeking to avoid two ditches and be somewhere in the middle when it comes to the spiritual gifts, specifically tongues, prophecy, things like that. We would not be cessationists who believe that some of the gifts have ceased never to exist again in this church age. I don't think you can get there scripturally. On the other hand, we would not call ourselves large C charismatics. Now, that's a large bandwidth right there, but within that stream, there would be people who would say that every believer should manifest every gift, or at least every church should always be manifesting every gift, and if you're not, something might be wrong with you. You might not even be saved, 
And so people often will fix it or more likely they will fake it. We're not there either. We would be in a stream, perhaps you would call continuationism, perhaps you'd just call it non-cessationist. We believe that anything we see, uh, the gifts of the early church in the Bible can exist in the church today. Not all the time, not everywhere, but God can do what God can do. We acknowledge that within this area, there are a lot of frauds. There are a lot of fakes, right? Um, And sometimes good people get swept up into that. But we don't want to let the abuse of these things steer us away from pursuing these things. That's kind of where we would be as a church. Does that make sense? Now, the context, just to revisit that, is that the church at Corinth were seen some, was seeing some of these spiritual gifts as merit badges, look at what I can do, rather than servants' towels to serve other people with. I love the way Stephen Um puts it in his excellent commentary on 1 Corinthians. He said, they were prioritizing the impressive over the intelligible. They had taken their eyes and forgotten the big point of it all. Do you remember chapter 12, verse 7 says, The manifestation of the Spirit is given to everyone for the common good, for the good of others. Chapter 12, verse 7 was teeing us up for this big idea, that gifts are given for the building up of others. The reason you and I get a gift is not for ourselves, but for the benefit of others. Gifts are given for the building up of the church. And we're going to see this entirely through the first half of chapter 14. But I do want you to drop your eyes on the latter part of verse 12, where the apostle says, strive to excel in building up the church. I'm taking that as the title for today's message, strive to excel in building up the church. Now, we're going to see this all through the passage. The word building up, by the way, is the word oikodome, interesting word. It literally has reference to building a house or building up a structure. Sometimes it's translated edify. Sometimes we talk about the edification or the building up of the saints. The end game of gifts is edification. Growth is the goal, and therefore, we're to strive to excel in building up the church. That's his resounding message through the four paragraphs of this section through which we are going to walk with a degree of detail. So, you know, summon all the caffeine you can to your, uh, that massive material between your ears, Dial in because we're going to walk through some of this with some detail and address some things that there's a lot of misunderstanding about. Good to go? All right, here we go. You should have an outline. First of all, we're going to see this comparison. The comparison is prophecy is better than tongues. Why, you ask? His teaching is this, because it edifies. That is, it builds up. So we begin in verse 1 where he says, pursue love. Oh man, I wish you could have been in our prayer meeting this morning. Somebody was praying those first two words, pursue love. And this person was just confessing what we all ought to confess, that so often we don't pursue love, do we? 
We think we know best. We don't think anyone else can tell us anything. We're proud. We're arrogant. We're very, by nature, by fallen nature, selfish. And in that, this person prayed, so often we're so moved by love stories in movies and shows and books that aren't even true. And not moved by the greatest and truest love story of all, God loved us while we were yet sinners. And to the degree that hits us afresh, then we can extend that love sideways or horizontally pursue love. He says pursue love. Out of pursuing love, what are we to do? We're to earnestly desire what kind of gifts? The spiritual gifts. Gifts that serve to build up. He goes on to say, especially that you may prophesy. Now, I had intended to go in some greater detail on that, but I simply can't for the sake of time. So all I can do is summarize what I talked about prophecy last time. I think three weeks ago when we were in chapter 12. Even in the Old Testament, these prophets, these crazy dudes who were on the precursor of the keto diet and dressed funny, right, and would step out and say strong things. Even in the Old Testament, when they could literally say, thus says the Lord, right? When some of what they prophesied became canonical or scriptural, even then, most of their prophetic work was not foretelling. There is some of that, you know, foretelling messianic prophecies and such. But most of it, part and parcel, was forthtelling, calling people back to the truth of God calling people to obedience and to repentance where applicable. Now, does prophecy exist today? Yes. Is there an element of foretelling? Yes. It can come in various ways, a burden, visions you might say, even dreams. But nobody can say, thus says the Lord. It should be expressed as a burden or does it mean anything to you? None of it is canonical, and it should always, according to 2 Thessalonians, be tested. Test all prophecies, it says. That said, even most of our prophecy today, which is different than Old Testament prophecy, is again forthtelling, calling people back to the truth of God, calling people to God himself, back to him in trust and obedience. Now, I would say, and I covered these gifts uh, a couple weeks ago, Wisdom, knowledge, um, the gift of discerning spirits, all of that falls within the prophetic gift family, the gift of prophecy. When does that happen? Hopefully it happens when the word of God is being preached. Hopefully it happens around those circular tables, midweek fellowship, when discussion is being had. Hopefully that happens in discussions, in DNA groups, and in contact points between brothers and sisters in the church. That's prophecy. Now, verse 2, y'all still with me? He begins the comparison by saying, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he does what? He utters mysteries in the Spirit. Now, this is the place that people use to support the idea of a private prayer language. You ever heard that? And so I feel like it probably would be helpful to go on a planned digression just for a few minutes. 
before we jump back into the text. So can we do that? I want, to, I want us to dive into this, and, and I dive into it um, as someone, just to be candid, who has explored that myself. So as I speak on it, I don't do so from an adversarial position, okay? But again, like you, I'm called to put myself in my experiences or lack thereof under the Word of God, not over the Word of God. So this is how it usually rolls. People would say that there is a private prayer language and say, listen, you go to chapter 12, verse 10, and it says the gift of various tongues, and they would say, there you have it, various tongues. But all the apostle might be saying is, listen, God gives the ability to speak in various different known languages that the speaker has never been trained in. Does that make sense? Or people go to chapter 13, verse 1, and they say, Hey, listen, it is speaking in the tongues of angels, to which I would say he says speaking there, not praying, right? Number two, I think he's actually speaking, uh, hyper, he's using hyperbole, he's, he's, he's kind of doing one-upsmanship. Remember, they were boasting in their gifts? Paul's like, big deal, how about this, if I spoke in the tongues of angels and didn't have love, <laughs> clanging, gong, Noisy symbol. That's, so he, he might just be saying that. Further, he seems to be speaking hypothetically, if I did. And fourth of all, every time an angel is on record in the canon of Scripture of speaking, they're not speaking a, a string of nonsensical sounds, consonants, all that. They're speaking a language of a human. They're speaking human language. Does that make sense? So then we go... If you're to Google this, like, what's the biblical support for that? All I'm trying to do is just go through it. There's four primary texts for it. Romans 8.26 says this. This is used to support the concept of tongues as a private prayer language. It says, the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings too deep for words. But what I would say to that is, it's the Spirit making intercession, not us. Tongues is us doing something. And further, it says in groanings too deep for words, and tongues, whatever we might believe about them, actually are words of some language. Then you go to Ephesians 6 and verse 18, where it says, praying always in the Spirit. And people would say, they see, there it is, that's tongues as a private prayer language. But it says nothing about tongues, and you actually have to import it into that verse or infer it. Does that make sense? You go to Jude, you have a similar phrase, building yourself up, praying always in the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. Again, it says nothing about tongues. You have to import that into there. You have to read it into it instead of doing exegetical work of reading it out. Now that then brings us to probably the strongest verses for supporting the idea of a private prayer language, which would be the very verses Pastor Cleet read this morning. So it would go like this, verse 2. Let me read it again. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. And somebody would say, okay, but tongues would be um, speaking to God. But all Paul might be saying is, listen, 
if people are breaking out in tongues and there's no one there to interpret, the only person you're speaking to is God, which defeats the purpose of the gifts. We do speak to God, but the gifts are for the good of others. And you know, Paul uses some sarcasm in his writings. You realize that. Some of which we would say borders on, on even the crass. You remember back in Galatians, people who say, hey, you know, if you want to be right with God, you need to get circumcised. And he says, if you think that, then, then, then mutilate yourself, is what he says. Sometimes, and he could be doing that here. He could be saying sarcastically, no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. That could be the sense of what he's saying. Somebody goes and says, well, hey, listen, verse 4 says that when you do that, however, you build yourself up. Indeed, Paul says that. Let's look at verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But here's the thing. Paul doesn't seem to be given an affirmation here, does he, so much as a correction. He goes on to say, but... One who prophesies builds up the church. In other words, you're missing the whole point of these gifts. If you think it's about yourself, it's about building others up. That's why I'm writing this section and this letter to you to fix the misuse and abuse of gifts. Now, somebody might go down to verse 14 and say, well, listen, there is something about, you know, praying in, in a private prayer language that um, fuels my spirit. Look at verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, hey, my spirit prays, yes, but my mind is unfruitful. And Paul definitely concedes that, but go, look at what he goes on to say. Why are you separating praying in your spirit from praying in your mind as if they're two different things? He actually kind of says they're supposed to happen together. Look at verse 15. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind also. And if you were to diagram that sentence and break down the object and the subject and the verb and all that, you would find that it looks like he's talking about the same activity at once from two different angles. While you're praying, pray in the spirit, but also pray with your mind. All I'm trying to say is this. Scriptural support for tongues as a private prayer language is not as strong as I once thought it to be. And it is based on a lot of inference, a lot of importing ideas. Does that make sense? I can't help but wonder when the apostles said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, a tee-up opportunity to talk about all kinds of prayer, right? He doesn't say, well, guys, let, let me start here. First, I want to tell you how to pray with your mind. Pray the pattern of the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, right? And then, if you want to go to the next level, let me tell you how to pray in the Spirit. And you speak in tongues. He, he doesn't do that. Now, that doesn't rule it out, but I find it insightful that he doesn't do that, right? Now, there's something in Bible interpretation called the first rule of occurrence. That the first time you see something... Okay, come that is revealed in scripture often sheds light on further times it's revealed so in the book of acts is the first time you see tongues in the new testament acts chapter 2 a glorious passage because you have these everyday guys they didn't take any of these online language training programs rosetta stone or anything like that 
And all of a sudden, they're extolling God and preaching the gospel in languages they never had training in, which is a beautiful gift, and I think it still happens today. I've heard stories of that. But D.A. Carson makes the point as you go to Acts chapter 2 that when it says languages, that word is glossa. We get the word glossary from there. A glossary is a book of known human words, right? And the word translated languages, dialecto, is the word we get for dialect from, a dialect of a language. It's a known language. So what we see when the Bible specifies what tongues are, what does it tell us? Languages people had not training in. Now, the King James has not helped with clarity on this because in verse 2 here, verse 4, verses 14 and verses 15, before the word tongues in italics, it supplies the word that's not in the original called the word unknown. You ever read that? I remember reading that. Unknown tongues. All they were trying to communicate is tongues that people did not know, other languages. But that has, I think, fueled an idea of tongues as a private prayer language because it's even unknown to humans. It's just this kind of mystery language. All I'm trying to say is this. While biblical support for tongues as a private prayer language I think is is, is pretty thin, based on these verses, I don't think we can rule it out entirely. And I do know many godly Bible-believing Christians, brothers and sisters, who have a high view of Scripture, who want to submit to the authority of Scripture, who believe it is so, and practice it. And I would just say, in any case, private prayer language would have no place in corporate worship. After all, it is what? A private prayer language. Now, Paul's going to tell us a little bit more why, um, why, you need to observe certain things in a gathered worship service. But whatever you think, and I think now Paul is primarily talking about tongues as a known language when no one was around to interpret. And perhaps, come to this momentarily, people were infusing the ecstatic utterances they would practice in their pagan worship rituals in the past, infusing that in the Corinthian worship. I, I think he's probably addressing that. But, but in any case, in any case, When he sets up this comparison, he's saying the issue with tongues, and I highlight it in my Bible, is that no one understands. Did you see that? Now he's going to advance on this comparison. Verse 3, and we'll move a little faster now. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their what? Oikodom, upbuilding, edification, right? And then he says, encouragement, paraclesis, same root word as paraclete, a descriptor of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, one who comes alongside us, one who encourages us, one who's an advocate for us. So one who prophesies has the effect of edifying people, building them up, of encouraging people. He even says consoling people, which is a beautiful concept of comfort in the midst of trial, comfort in the midst of sorrow, comfort in the midst of struggle, and we all experience that. Now, why is it that prophecy can do those things? Why can prophecy edify, build up? Why can prophecy encourage? Why can it console? Why? Because unlike tongues, it is readily understood, or at least there's a chance to understand it. 
he amplifies his comparison in verse 4. The one who speaks in the tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now he says, I want you to speak in tongues. He doesn't diss on it, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone does what? Interprets so what? So that the church may be built up. In five short verses, he talks about the church being built up three times. So what's the first comparison? Comparison number one. Prophecy is better than tongues because it builds up or edifies. Now, I know we're going deep. You all with me still? Verses 6 through 12, and I'm just trying to take this, I'm not trying to use fancy points the way I state things. I'm just trying to take it as plainly as I can. In verses 6 through 12, he brings to bear three illustrations to make the point of why prophecy is better, those are his words, than tongues because it edifies. He begins in verse 6 by saying this. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, unless, how, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? In other words, unless I bring something that has the capacity to edify, to encourage, to console, because it is more readily understood. Now, illustration number one is this. If even lifeless instruments, verse 7, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? Ah, this is easy to illustrate. Go back to third grade music class. And when your teacher had recorder week, remember the recorders, those like, I don't know how they did not have serious counseling needs going through that. It was nothing but shrill fest, right? No melody, no harmony, no rhythm. So you say, it sounds like you, Mike. Yes, no music. You couldn't understand what was being played, right? And that's what he's saying about tongues without interpretation. What's being said? It's a lifeless instrument. Illustration number two, verse eight. And here's, here's the illustration of a military bugle. And if the bugle is an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Now, let's say I could play a bugle. Let's say you're all in a fighting position, and you're waiting for orders, and you hear me play, do-do-do-do, what are you going to do? Charge, right? That's charge. But let's say I, you can't tell if it's taps, or you can't tell if it's retreat. So I give the command, it's an indistinct bugle sound. Some are going to the chow hall. Some are going to sleep, and some are charging the enemy. Nobody knows what to do. Why? It's not readily understood. Third illustration is a foreign language that no one understands and no one is around to interpret. Look at verse 9. So with yourselves, if with you tongue, your tongue you utter speech that is not what? And that's, very under, that's a big thing, being intelligible, being understood. How will anyone know what is, say, what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. And it's, it's funny, it has nothing to do with the text, but it kind of reminds me of every time we go, as a family go hiking in some high place, I yell out, Ricola, into the air. And at least that makes some kind of sense, even though there's a bald maniac on the top of that little hill. But that's what it's like. We're speaking into the air. Verse 10, 
There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. By the way, that verse inclines me to think when he's talking about tongues, he's talking about known human languages. He says there's many different languages in the world. But at any rate, verse 11, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. Foreigner is a milder translation of what foreigner is in the original. It actually was a crude way Roman soldiers would talk about people of a foreign language, foreigners. They couldn't understand them, and they would just call them barbarians. That's how it's translated in the King James, because they would sound like bar, 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 boss, bar, boss, bar, boss, bar, boss. It was the way they actually spoke derisively of them, because they couldn't understand them. Paul is saying, listen, when, when, there, when there's a tongue and there's no one to interpret, no one is built up. It's like having a, a language there that you can't understand, and it just sounds like a bunch of sounds that don't make any sense to you. So instead of sounding like a lifeless instrument, an indistinct military bugle, or a foreigner, this is what he says, verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, here it is, strive to excel in building up the church. So what have we covered so far? One, there's a comparison. Prophecy is better, his words, than tongues because it edifies. Number two, he gives three illustrations of why prophecy is better than tongue because it is not a lifeless instrument. It is not a foreign language. It is not an indistinct military bugle. You all with me? That was less encouraging than going into the second paragraph, but we're going to continue anyway. Number three, basically what he's saying in this third paragraph is tongues are only helpful in corporate worship. He's just saying the same thing, but in a different way. Tongues are only helpful in corporate worship when they are interpreted. Look at verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. We think that when tongues happen, and they still do happen, that it's always somebody else interpreting. But it actually says right here, that person who is speaking in that, that foreign language should also pray for interpretation. He continues, for if I pray in my tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Now, Verse 16 gets to the crux of the matter. Otherwise, he says, now listen to me, he says, if you give thanks with your spirit, in other words, you're just speaking in uninterpreted tongues, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't have a clue what you're saying? You see what he's saying there? You don't know what's, you don't know what's going on. How can somebody participate? How can somebody respond if they don't know what's being said? Um, There's going to be, the last paragraph is going to say more on the word outsider, but you see outsider right there? That is uh, a non-believer, uh, one who um, is not in Christ. Now, they're not going to understand everything, but they should at least have a stabbing chance of understanding what's going on, right? Paul is not about being seeker-sensitive, Seeker-sensitive is a whole movement that says, don't ever 
possibly say anything that could be offensive to a non-Christian. He, he ain't seeker sensitive. He is seeker sensible. That is, he wants people to understand what is being taught, and they won't via tongues. Verse 17, he says this. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not what? Being built up. He keeps on talking about edification. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. And again, Paul is not beating up tongues. I, man, I wish I could have, I wish somebody could have videotaped his missionary tours, right? He goes into all these different towns and cities. There's so many different languages in the Mediterranean area. Can you imagine him going to a town and boom, he stands up and he's able to preach the gospel and extol and worship God in a language he doesn't even know? So he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But he goes on to say, nevertheless, verse 19, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And 10,000 practically is said to be the highest number in ancient Rome. They, it's often translated myriads. In other words, infinity. You could have infinite amount of tongue words. I'd, I'll take five intelligible words is what he says. Now that brings us to the last paragraph. The comparison is finally completed. I hope you all are staying with me. Prophecy is not only better than tongues because it edifies, but according to this verse, prophecy is better than tongues, this paragraph, because it evangelizes. Look at verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. <laughs> and we, we, we flip it, don't we? We become, you know, adults in evil and infants in thinking. He says, no, no, no. Be, yeah, be, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In other words, don't be like kids who get these gifts and they say, you know what? I'm going to use it however I want, wherever I want, in front of whoever I want. It's all about me. No, it's not all about you. It's about others. It's about the upbuilding of the church. Don't be, don't be, don't be juvenile, he's saying. Now, verse 21 <laughs> seems to come out of nowhere. But if you understand this, you're going to understand the ultimate thrust of this passage. So, so again, buckle up. Verse 21, he seemingly out of nowhere quotes Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. He says, in the law, Isaiah 28, 11 and 12, it's written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, there's the, let me give you the context of Isaiah 28. Peter, rather, Peter, no, he wasn't around then. Isaiah was warning unrepented Israel of impending judgment coming from the Assyrians, right? We well know that God often uses non-believers to chasten his people, right? All the time. He still does it today, out of love. He's using Assyria to drive Israel back to repentance because they were just, they were going after all the guys. They, they were whoring around. But here's the sense. Here's what's happening. Because he's basically saying, you refuse to hear the warning of impending judgment from your prophet, 
you're going to hear about the judgment from the very people I'm using to bring the judgment on you. And you won't even understand, but it's the attacking Assyrians. Does that make sense? You're going to hear about your judgment from the very people judging you. And you won't understand it because it's a different tongue. And that's why he says, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to those people, and even then they will not listen to me. Now, that brings us to verse 22, which is almost like a proverb. It's very enigmatic. It's at, at face value kind of puzzling when you look at verse 22. It says, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, that's kind of puzzling, isn't it? Again, what he's saying is tongues are a sign for unbelievers, right? And prophecy is a sign for believers. And if you read it just at face value, you think, good night. <laughs> we ought to let tongues just rip away, right? Because they're a sign for unbelievers, and that's good. That is until you realize sometimes there are good signs, and sometimes there are bad signs. Sometimes there are signs of judgment. That's the point here. That's why he quotes the sign of judgment of the Assyrians against the unrepented Jewish nation. Verse 23 confirms that is a sign indeed, unbelievers, but a sign of judgment. Verse 23 says this, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and an outsider or unbelievers enter, or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your mind? Now, is that a good thing, a good sign right there or a bad sign? It's a bad sign. That's a bad sign. J.D. Greer was saying, um, if a person comes into a scene like that, everyone's just breaking out in tongues, there's no interpretation, it's just basically chaos. That person's going to say, you folk are out of your mind. I could have stayed home and watched this on cable. And go to the fridge while I was watching this crazy show. I mentioned one time that my family was in that situation. Let me give you a second time. Just become a believer. A little uh, church called Victory Chapel or Victory Center, something like that, near the front gate of Camp Lejeune, downtown Jacksonville. And I was invited by my friend Brian Roberts, who, who loves the Lord, awesome guy. But I was invited to, we were invited to a, a Friday night prayer meeting. And everyone got around the platform, and they just... I don't know how else to say it, but they just babbled in tongues. And I had a choice. I can fake it or I can bail. I bailed. I think I might have stayed out of love for my friend, but I never came back. I'll give you a few more quotes to give you the idea of what's going on here. Paul Barnett in this commentary says, If all the visitors here is a babble of tongues, he will conclude that the assembly of Christians is little different from cults like Dionysus and Sibeli, where people raved on in, in unintelligible language. Thus, tongue, by the way, the reason we know that tongues are not just ecstatic utterances that you can't stop, we'll see this next time, is because in verse 27 it says, no more than two or three at once, right? And if there's no interpreter, what do you got to do? Shut it down. In other words, it's not like a faucet that you can't turn off. Barnett goes on to say, thus tongues will be a sign, not pointing to an urging belief, but unbelief. For the visiting outsider, this babble will be an omen of judgment, just as the foreign language of the invading Assyrians was an omen of judgment on the people of Israel. Does that make sense? 
Gordon Fee, he's a charismatic, so I want to quote him on this. I, I benefit from him greatly. This is what he says about what's going on in these verses. Because tongues are unintelligible, believers receive no revelation from God. They cannot thereby be brought to faith. Thus, their response to seeing the work of the Spirit is madness. They are then destined for judgment, just as in the Old Testament passage Paul quoted. This, of course, is not the divine intent for such people. Hence, Paul's urgency that the Corinthians cease thinking like children and stop the use of public tongues since it drives the unbeliever away rather than leads him or her to faith. And the only exception would be if, in, if tongues are what? Interpreted. Or a foreign language that somebody is there that understands. Now that brings us back to 22b, the other so side of that proverb-like statement. He says, thus tongues are assigned not for believers, but for unbelievers, while on the other hand, prophecy is assigned for who? Not for unbelievers, but for believers. And this, as we've seen in this chapter, is actually a good thing. That's a good sign. Because as we've seen in this chapter, prophecy is readily understood. It can edify, it can comfort, it can console. And as Paul clearly says, in addition to that, this is why I say it also evangelizes, according to verses 24 and 25, that has a spillover effect on the outsiders that attend where they can end up themselves worshiping God. Look how he puts it. Verses 24 and 25, last two verses. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He's a called account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God really is among you. The ESV puts it this way, study Bible. Although the purpose of prophecy is primarily for the benefit of believers, prophecy, unlike tongues, has the secondary benefit of convicting the unbeliever, exposing the secrets of his heart, and causing him to worship God. And man, that is an adrenaline-pumping, beautiful thing when that happens. That was my experience when at the invitation of my wife, I went to a little church called Harvest Presbyterian, a church plant. And I walked in there, and people are singing, and, you know, they're falling along in prayer and, and all that. And, and I remember thinking, I'd already started reading the Bible. The Lord was convicting me of my sin. Is this stuff really true, you know? Is every, all these people are testifying to what this guy up front is saying. Is this all really true? true. And then, and then I thought this, how in the world does this guy know all this about me? I'm kind of pissed. I was cut. I was exposed. I only felt the weight of sin more. People were so afraid for people to feel shame and guilt. Shame and guilt lead us to the cross. And I felt that even more, not because he was, you know, unkind or bombastic. He was passionate. He was passionately preaching the gospel. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You too, buddy. And I remember hearing the gospel. Like, this, I would have always believed in Jesus. I didn't believe in Muhammad. I didn't believe in Buddha. I, I always believed in Jesus. But I didn't trust in him. I didn't see him for who he was. And bam, the lights went on. Like, Christ 
die for me. He took my hit and he rose again. And I remember all this coming home. So with the cutting and exposing, there was the start of healing as I trusted in Jesus. It's like, whoa, something's happening to me. This is crazy. This is a 1 Corinthians 14 verses 24 and 25 kind of moment. Now, when does this happen? When does this prophesying happen? When does it happen? Because did you see all the times he says all, all, all call people to account? Look at, just look at the words all. But if all prophesy, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, 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 all. When does that happen in the service? It happens the whole service. It happens when somebody stands up and they reads the word of God. There's prophesying going on. When somebody stands up and makes some announcements, there might be some prophesying going on in that. There is definitely prophesying going on when they're singing. And when you join in that song, you too are prophesying. When the sermon is preached, there's prophesying. When the benediction is offered, when conversations are had, it happens. And so I close quickly with this. Four applications by way of questions, okay? This is on my heart to share with you guys. I thought about cutting it because we're going a little long. Let me finish with this, please, because it it flows right out of the text. Number one, do I seek an atmosphere in gathered worship that makes God's presence palpable? Now, I'm not trying to look smarter than I am, but I just, the word palpable, let let me define it. It's a strong word. It means something that is so intense, it's almost intangible, though you can't see it. Does that make sense? And here, what was happening is God's presence was so intense, it led people who walked in as outsiders to literally declare, God is really among you. That's a powerful dynamic right there, isn't it? That's a stupendous, crazy dynamic, an awesome one. Now, those who know me, Pastor Cleet, Pastor Charles, who know this ministry, know that we are not about artificially manufacturing God's presence, right? Through gimmicks and smoke machines and manipulative music and all the rest. We're not about that. But we would say, and I say to you this morning, or now this afternoon, every believer here, I want you to hear me, You either add or you take away from this atmosphere of God's palpability. Either add or you take away. Again, it's one or the other. So do you you prepare for when we come together? Starting the night before and then moving into the morning? No athlete worth her or his salt ever steps into a competition without training, without preparation, at a minimum without warming up right before the game. I mean, when you watched the Super Bowl, was it a week ago Sunday, I guarantee you the first time they hit the field was not for the coin flip, right? They've been out there for three hours preparing and stretching and warming up. They would not physically be ready if they didn't do that. So do you arrive spiritually ready? prepared, and warmed up? Do you arrive eager? Do you arrive expectant? 
Do you understand? It is a privilege to gather with the saints of God. People literally die around the world for risking their necks to gather with their brothers and sisters. Do you prepare? Do you pray for God to move in hearts? For God to move in your heart. For you, for you to come and say, God, I want you to move in my heart. I want you to open my eyes. I want you to expose sin. I want you to cut it. I want you to heal. Is there things that you need to repent of? Are there hard conversations to have? Hard conversations are hard because they're hard to have. Because you come in here, I come in here with unrepentant sin. If I'm reading scripture right, that quenches the spirit. That is not going to feed and move towards making God's presence palpable. You prepare, do you pray? Are you punctual? It's not only how you show up that matters, but can I say this? When you show up says something about how hungry you are, how much you prioritize this, how eager you are, how dependent you are. And do you participate? Do you sit? Or at least at a minimum, do you serve by greeting others, by getting out of your little space and getting out of your little comfort zone? Do you pray when others are praying? Do you enter into song? Do you engage in sermon? All you got to do is look at the book of Ezra when the old grizzled guy stood up and read the book of the law. There was all kinds of responses. Some wept. Some stood. Some bowed their head. Some waved their arms. Some shouted amen. They were engaged in the word. As I prayed, am I scrolling and drifting and getting all glassy-eyed and quietly chatting to somebody next to me? Or am I savoring and depending? Am I glued and chasing God? Do I seek an atmosphere that makes God's presence palpable? All of us add to that or take away. And I think God has the capacity, whether you've seen it or not, to move mightily in a service. So that somebody falls on their face and says, surely God is in your midst. And they came in not believing that. Number two, do I understand the gathering is for believers? Sometimes, I've heard people say this, well, what will, I, what will, a, so -and -so, what will a, my friend say or a visitor say if they come and say, you speak on, you know, human sexuality? Or something that's, a, that, 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 that's not culturally palatable is addressed from Scripture. And you know what that betrays? It betrays a misunderstanding of what the gathering of saints is about. I think it's pretty clear in chapter 14, among other places, that the gathering is for the saints. Our primary concern must always be not what will a visitor say, but what does the word of God say? Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. <laughs> Paradoxically, that's what ends up saving outsiders. And we want many outsiders to be here. We want to be hospitable and friendly and inviting to the outsiders. We're hospitable to them because they're not in the family. And so we want them to come into the family. But it does not say, and this cousin, he wasn't being seeker sensitive here, was he? He says, an outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. Falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's how it happens. Number three, do you have a Corinthian view of your gifts? 
So often, people are only willing to serve where they're gifted or where they're interested, or I did that for years. That's a Corinthian thinking about gifts. It means they're thinking about their gifts in terms of themselves and not building up the church. Listen, not all of us have the gift of generosity, but we're all called to give, right? Not all of us have the gift of service, but we're all called to serve. Not all of us have the gift of hospitality, but we're all called to reach out. Am I striving to excel in building up the church? Fourth and finally, do I realize that it's not my gifts or anything else but the cross of Christ that makes me close to God? See, some of these people thought that their gifts elevated them at Corinth. And they actually felt closer to God, I think, because of those gifts. Now, there's a healthy way our gifts can make us feel close to God, right? Like, I'm sure when somebody sings who's gifted in that, they feel especially close to God. Or when you preach, if you have a, some gift of preaching, you feel closer or serving or any of the gifts that he mentions here. Or even just other things can make us close to God, and that's so feel close to God, right? I remember in Chariots of Fire, great movie, that guy said, I feel the pleasure of God when I run. God made him with running legs and a running, there's no wrong. I feel, I feel the pleasure of God when I'm in a deer stand or when I'm in a batter's box, except when I miss the shot or, or strike out. So there's nothing wrong with that. But listen, Christian maturity is this. It's when the cross of Christ makes you feel closest to God. Christian maturity is when the finished work on the Christ, finished work of Christ on the cross, not only objectively brings us close to God, and it does, Christ died the just for the unjust to bring us to God, 1 Peter 3.18. But when the cross of Christ, just dwelling on it, makes me feel close to God. And if the cross of Christ doesn't make you feel close to God, there needs to be growth there. We could not be any closer to God than we are at the foot of the cross. Any closer. And yet, don't we drift from that? And when we don't feel that with God, it it unravels our life. It's unhealthy. And we think that there's answers in all these different places. And sometimes part of the answer for our problems is in different places. But at the end of the day, if you're not ultimately going to God with whatever your problem is, you're going down to Egypt. You're going back into slavery. You're drinking from a broken cistern. Jesus even said, you could be possessed by several demons, and if you sweep them out and you're not filled by truth, more will come. You'll just change your issue. You'll just change your addiction, whatever the case may be. So Christian maturity says, I don't need to just check the box when I come into this sacred place and sacred space. The gathering is. I need to seize the opportunity and dive in afresh remembering how much I need the gospel to land on me as if it was the very first time again. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I ask that you would use this truth, use this message um, to shape shape us, to change us, 
I'm sure it has been. There's so much in these verses. It's like a fire hose. But Lord, in that fire hose, would you wash us with your water and cause to land, lodge in our thinking, each of us specifically, those things that we, we need to walk away with. I pray that we would be a church that finds its greatest closeness to you, not in anything we can do or are, but because of Christ. And that we would really understand the power and the weightiness and the significance of the gathering as reflected in this passage so that people would come in and say, wow, surely God is in your midst. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.